All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and uh, open to Genesis chapter 3. So, three chapters into the Bible. That's where we're going to start today. So, this morning we're going to take some time to jump into the second part of what we started last week. Uh, if you weren't here, we started a series called What is the Gospel? Now, I don't know in this room right now if you have church background, it's the first time you've ever been to church, what your understanding of Jesus is, but the word gospel has a lot of different connotations to it, and it can be a loaded term. Um, in terms of what is the gospel. And so we want to take some time to talk through that because if we really understand what the gospel is, we, it will transform the way we understand how we follow Jesus, who God is, what he's called us to do in the world. It influences and affects so much of our life, and sometimes we miss it. The term gospel means good news, and it's supposed to be about the good news of God's story and his profound love for all of humanity, that through his son Jesus, his death and his resurrection made a way for us as human beings, even though we're flawed and we're broken, to find our way back into relationship with God. Now, that's the gospel in like 10 seconds, but that's the big picture of the gospel. The challenge is, sometimes we don't embrace that gospel we actually sometimes embrace more or less of that. We either add to it or we subtract from it. And what I mean by that is sometimes what we do is when we come to this understanding that God loves me so much that there's nothing that I can do to change his affection for me. I can't be good enough or better and he'll love me more or I can't mess up enough that he'll love me less. And we live in this thing called grace and we walk in mercy, which means he, he somehow makes a way for even though we deserve judgment, we don't get it because Jesus took it on our behalf. And all these great truths and we think that's wonderful, but deep down inside we think it's almost too good to be true. In fact, I think, I really think the way it works is God wants me to be good enough, so I better start working really hard in my life to do really good things that although I know Jesus died on the cross and I, wrote, I know he rose from the dead, that when I stand before God someday, I need to make sure I got enough in my bank account of morality and good behavior that I can at least stand before God and he'll say, yeah, you did it, good job, you're in. You know what that's called? That's not called Christianity. That's not even called the gospel. That's called religion. That's saying, I have to figure out a way to be good enough for God so that when I stand before him someday, he looks at me and he gives me the gold star by my name and I get in the door. That's what they were struggling with. That's what Jesus challenged so many times when he walked this planet about people buying into that somehow connecting with God had everything to do with their ability to be good. But sometimes we go to the other extreme, the other opposite, and that's we start to subtract from the gospel. And what we think the gospel is, is that God has just made a way for me to add a layer of divinity on top of my life, a little bit of God in my life, and if I embrace that little bit of God, then everything will be a little bit better, everything will be a little bit sweeter, my life will be more comfortable, I'll get the promotion at work, I'll have more money, and I'll live the American dream. That's not the gospel either. That's less of the gospel. And when we get stuck in those two extremes, we miss out on what the gospel truly is in our lives and how that translates in how we see ourselves, how we see God, and how we see the world around us. Last week of here, we talked about discovering God's story. We kind of went through the narrative, which is human history, and through the scriptures to say, look, at this is what the big picture of the gospel is. The gospel didn't start with Jesus. The gospel started way back at the beginning. Is actually where we're going to be today, and that is in Genesis chapter 3, because today I want to talk about discovering our story in the midst of God's story, how we kind of fit into what he's doing around us and understanding what that story looks like. And so I want to just take a few minutes and start in Genesis chapter 3 because the story we see in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve, pretty familiar story, where they eat some fruit from a tree that they're not supposed to eat from, 
and do this against what God purposed for them, and they sin, they make some decisions in the process that although you and I weren't standing in the garden and we weren't tempted like they were tempted, we experience the same kind of reality. We make the same decisions today that they did thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And it helps us to understand when we look through the lens of their life how we struggle sometimes with our humanity and understanding who God is and then again understanding the big concept of the gospel. So three things I wanted to start with out of this story. This is kind of our side of the story. This is the way we live out the reality of our lives. These are common characteristics for all humanity. Nobody is exempt from these, not one person all of human history. So looking at verse 1, the first thing that's true of our side of the story is that we all have a severe difficulty in trusting God. Not just a light surface kind of level. We have a deep-seated distrust of God, either in faith in Him that He is trustworthy or any kind of belief that He even exists. So listen to verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? So the serpent, which is being, obviously, is the devil, coming in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve, comes to them and right off the bat asks a question. And asks the question, Did God really say this? And then if you understand the story, you read some more, then he actually doesn't say what God said. He makes his own thing up. But the first thing he does is he comes and he wants Adam and Eve to question God's intentions for them. He wants them to question, is God really being truthful? Is God really holding back? Can you really trust him? Because he knows that inside of them, because God gave them the capacity to make a choice on their own, that he'll be able to tap into their questioning. And so they begin to think for a moment, wait a second, is God really truthful? Is God really trustworthy? Is he really going to work on my behalf? Is he really telling me the truth that if I listen to him and I don't eat from this certain tree, that everything's going to be great, but if I eat from that tree, everything will be bad? Can I really trust him? All of us in our life have experienced that kind of challenge. Whether you know Jesus or not, there's been a place in your life where you've asked the question, is God real and can I trust him? See, if we don't know God, we struggle with knowing what his character is like. But if we do know him, then we know when he says things, they are trustworthy. But we struggle in that tension. How well do we know him? How much do we trust him? When Kim and I were dating, I think we were dating for probably the six months or so, maybe eight months, I wasn't quite sure. But um, when uh, uh, there was a friend of mine that I grew up with, and he happened to move to Ventura, and Kim was up in Ventura, and we were dating, and so he started to attend the church that Kim was going to, and I would come up to Ventura every once in a while, and I'd attend the church with her, and he was one of my best friends growing up, and so um, Kim tells me this story that, that I'm glad I wasn't present at the time, but she told me after the fact, so I think it was a Sunday, and he was at church, and she was at church, and I had introduced him to her, because I was dating her, and and so I wasn't there, and he approached her after church one Sunday and said, hey, would you like to go out to lunch with me? Now, Kim obviously is pretty smart and thinking, no, I'm dating John, I'm not dating you, I don't really feel comfortable going out to lunch with you. And so she said, no, I, I don't, I really would not, wouldn't like to go out to lunch. My wife's pretty straightforward. She just said, no, I, I don't think I want to do that. And knowing that I probably would feel a little uncomfortable with that. And so he said to her, no, 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 I know John, he would be fine with it. And I don't know exact words in Kim's response, but I know the gist of it was that, no, I know John, and he wouldn't be fine with it. Because she did know me. And she could trust that what he was saying was not true of who I was. 
because she knew me. Now, I was glad that I wasn't there because when she told me the story, I was just slightly perturbed. <laughs> but I was glad that she knew me enough to know that if somebody put words in my mouth that weren't true of who I was, she wouldn't believe it. The same thing is true in our struggle with understanding and trusting God. Do we actually trust him? That's what the enemy's getting at. He's saying, did God really say this? Can you really trust him? And then he begins to tell a lie that goes on. Second thing, look at verses two through five. The, our side of the story is not only do we struggle in trusting God, but we have a strong desire to be in control. Everybody raise your hand. I am a control freak. Say it, because it's true. All of us are. And if, you're, if your hand's not up, you are a liar, and that's even worse, right? I don't know which is worse. All of us seek to be in control of our own lives. We want to control everything about our lives. We want to control how long we live, where we live, how much money we have, the job we have, the spouse we have. We want to control all that. Why? And I'll talk about it in a minute, because we think we know what's best. We think we know what will make us happy. So look at verses 2 through 5. The story goes on. It says, The woman said to the serpent, We may, uh, we may eat from the fruit the tree, uh, the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Listen to this, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that, you, uh, that you eat, if you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, he's kind of coming in, and he's saying, God's holding out on you. And what he's doing is he's kind of giving them this promise. You can be in control because if you eat this fruit, you'll be just like God. You can be your own God. That's what he's saying to him. That's why God's holding out on you because he knows if you eat from that tree, then you're going to be just like him and you won't need him anymore and he'll be irrelevant and you can be in control of everything. And how many of us know how wonderful life is when we're in control of everything? The world we live in right now is what we perceive to be control. Anybody seen the movie Bruce Almighty? I think it's a great depiction of what life looks like when we think we can be God. We have the greatest ideas and we think that we can control everything because we bought into this lie that God isn't good enough to be God, so I need to be God instead. If you watch that movie, it's a funny thing, like he uses Bruce Almighty, Bruce starts using email as a way to collect prayer requests and he gets like a million requests for help me win the lottery. So he says, fine, I'll answer all of them. Everybody wins the lottery, so everybody wins $2. Like, so nobody won. And the world literally falls apart. I mean, people, I mean, things are being destroyed. The earth is destroying itself. And he finally gives up and says, okay, uh, I'm not so good at being God anymore. That's our journey. Because you'll see in the, this next portion, that, and when Adam and Eve made this decision, the opposite happened than what they thought would happen. So goes on in the story. Look at the third thing, verses 6 and 7. On our side of the story, we have a confused pathway to happiness. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Just for a moment, pause. Her husband who was with her. So just a minute, for a minute, guys, don't ever blame, blame women for things because Eve was not as guilty. She was the same guilty as, as Adam. Adam was there. He was just silent. He didn't say anything, but he went right along with it. So, guys, we're just as guilty as the gals, okay? So, if, hey, ladies, if a guy ever says that to him, tell him he's wrong. <laughs> then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. So remember, the, it, God, did God really say that? Because if you eat this, it's gonna, you're going to be just like him. And then what do I do? They eat it. Why? Because in their mind, they think, this is my pathway to happiness. 
She looked at the fruit. It was good. It was good to eat. And knowing what it might accomplish for her, she eats it. Adam eats it. And then as we go on in the story, what happens? Everything begins to unravel at that point. Their relationship with God begins to unravel. And I think what happens is what happens to all of us. The best way to understand what, what our context is, being human, being in this thing called flesh and living in this world, it's that we have a disposition towards selfishness. We do, just by nature. That's the way that we are wired because of the impact of sin in our lives. And so because of that, we get, when you become selfish, you realize that everything that may be important or significant that is apart from you just disappears, you get tunnel vision on what you think your dream is or what your life's supposed to be about or what happiness looks like and you lose sight of everything else around you. In the garden, Adam and Eve lost sight of everything that they had. They had this face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe. They had no pain or suffering or loss. They had everything they could want. Everything. Everything was perfect and in a moment, they lost sight of all of that with this promise, you can be your own God. You can create your own reality. You can make your own happiness. And they bought into it. And what was the result? Everything unraveled. You ever gotten so hyper-focused on something that you really wanted because you thought it would bring you happiness that you didn't see clearly all around you what was happening? I had a friend. We were at a pool party when I was younger. We were sitting out in the backyard. We had gotten out of the pool and this huge house and all the bedrooms kind of faced the back of the house towards the pool. And almost every bedroom had like a sliding glass door that you could access the patio from. And so we're sitting, having this conversation. And I could tell as I was talking, his eyes started to glaze over. He stopped listening to me. And he was just staring straight ahead. And so as I kept talking and thinking he would come out of like his coma or whatever he was going into, all of a sudden, out of the blue, he stood up and full bore started running towards one of these bedrooms. And I was like, what in the world is he doing? The problem was, for some reason, he tells me later, he was looking, there was some kind of electronic device that he really wanted to get to that was in one of those bedrooms. But apparently, this family did a really good job of washing their windows, so there was no streaks, and he couldn't see that the sliding glass door was closed. So full bore, he runs to get in the bedroom and smack right into the window. He was a pretty small kid, so he wasn't big enough to break the window, but he was small enough to be launched about 10 feet back by the window. And seriously, he goes flying back, lays, he's laid out, and he's looking up, and I, dude, what happened? Are you okay? He goes, I had no idea the window was there. He said, all I saw, and I can't remember, it was like TV or something, he goes, I saw this, and I wanted it. And he's looking up just stunned, like, what in the world just happened to me? How many times in our life do you experience the same thing? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Adam and Eve and say, okay, if I eat this fruit, I get to be God, I get to create happiness, I get to be in control, you eat it and everything falls apart. You probably in a moment of time there are thinking, what in the world just happened? What in the world did I just lose? It was so obvious and so easy and now it's the opposite. And we won't go through the whole story, but if you continue to go on in the passage, you get to verse seven, they lose their innocence. Now they know they're naked. Now they know there's shame attached to the reality of who they are. They lose their happiness because now everything that was going to be easy for them, ladies, you can just thank Eve for this one. <laughs> Childbirth would have been a piece of cake. No epidural necessary. But thanks to Eve, now you st- women will struggle in giving birth to children. Adam, guys, we can thank him for this one. Now work is hard. Because Adam really didn't have to do work that we would have to do to earn something. It actually was more of tending what was in the garden, and it would produce fruit on its own. Now that becomes a task, a job, something that causes you to work hard for. 
So they lose that, and then eventually they lose the most important thing at the end of the chapter. They lose the relationship they had with God. They become separated from God now. All because why they bought into what every human being has bought into, our side of the story, that we can't learn to truly trust God. We want to be in control, and we think we know what's best for us, and when we realize none of those things pan out, then what are we, we are stuck in a state of being lost and separated from God. The good news is there's not just one side, there's two sides to the story. And the story doesn't end in the garden. The story doesn't end in our failure. It actually continues on because for a moment I want to talk about what is God's side of the story? What is going on behind the scenes when we're out seeking to be our own God, being in control, seeking after happiness? What is God in the process of doing? Three quick things. The first thing, he is in the process of providing for us. It's provision. His side of the story is provision. Provision for what? Provision to make a way for us to get back into relationship with him, which Adam and Eve lost and all of us have lost, which is how we were created. We were created to be in relationship with him. Romans chapter five, verse seven and eight in the paraphrase called the message. God, or Jesus, or Christ, arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We, can't un- we can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could is- inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. We hadn't even given God a thought. And he's sending his son into the world to die a horrific death for us. Why? Because in that death, all of our sin and brokenness, all of our failure and suffering, all of that gets put on Jesus in that moment so that now the pathway is cleared to make our way back to God because what had separated Adam and Eve in the garden and separated us is sin. And Jesus dealt with sin. So that no longer has to be an issue for us. We get to be in relationship. God has provided a way for that to happen, even when we didn't even realize it. This is what's crazy. We're over here, we're living out our reality of rebellion and selfishness and trying to make life work, and we hadn't even given God a thought. And meanwhile, over on this side of the story, the God of the universe in human flesh is dying on our behalf because he loves us so much. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to wake up. He didn't wait, okay, finally they'll, they'll figure it out. No, he's already provided so that when we do awaken to the reality of life, the provision's already taken care of. That's true for everybody. There's an awakening that can happen for every human being that God has already taken care of. The one thing that will keep us away from him, he's dealt with sin through Jesus, and he's just waiting for the world to awaken to that reality. And for maybe even some of us in this room today, And then there's the third, or excuse me, second thing of his side of the story. He provides, and then he pursues. He is always in pursuit of us. Now, if you and I were God, it wouldn't work this way. If Adam and Eve, if probably most of us, if you're like me, if we were God, Adam and Eve would have had one chance, and that was it. Story over. We don't get past Genesis. It's just a very short, you know, the Bible's not thick. The Bible's really thin. Story's over. Yes, that is rain you hear on the roof. We do have that in Southern California occasionally, right? Yeah, exactly. So God is constantly pursuing us. See, we think that we have to go find God as though he's some mystery that is hiding from us. But he's actually constantly in pursuit of us. Listen to what uh, it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. Paul said this. 
He said, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and determine the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God's the pursuer. He's the one that comes after us. And he is relentless. He will not quit and he will not give up until one of two things happen. Either we finally stop running and we give up and we surrender to his love, or at our dying breath, we finally turn and reject him and choose our own destiny. But he will never, ever quit coming after us. In fact, what Paul's writing here is he's saying, listen, you don't pick the times and the places that you live. God does. And he does that for every human being. Why? So that somehow in the circumstances of their life, God will help them to see he is right there waiting to intersect their life, waiting to engage them, waiting to embrace them, if they'll just open their eyes. And I've shared this story before, but there's things that you know that happen in life, and you're like, okay, God orchestrated that to help me see the way he works in my life. So when Kim and I, before we were started dating, we were friends, and we would just kind of got to know each other, but I know I had feelings for her before she even realized it. And so because of that, you know, she just thinks we're still friends, and I'm thinking, nah, I got an agenda here. And so one of our classes in, in college, one of the professors said, I'm going to use a seating chart to take attendance, but I'm going to give you three or four class periods to find the seat you want. But when we get to that date, whatever your seat is, you're in, what seat you're in is the seat you get for the semester. And I thought, this is it. This is from God, orchestrated for me <laughs> to get to know Kim even better. And so I took full advantage of it. And for the first three or four class periods, every single day I would get there way early, I would make sure as the class filled up that nobody, nobody, not any of my friends would sit in the seat next to me. I had to fight for it a couple times. Like, no, you're not sitting there. You're out of there. And then Kim would just come walking in the class and, oh, wow, it just happens to be a seat right next to me. And then I finally remember that day. It finally came, and I had orchestrated I fought for it. And she comes in. She sits down. And then the professor starts the class period. And she says, yeah. She goes, okay, the seat that you're in now is the seat you're in for the semester. And I turn, I'm like, yes. Of course, she didn't see that part. She had no idea. I told her this later. But all the while, she had no idea that I was pursuing her and was positioning things to be near her, which on a much grander scale in our life, every point of circumstance in your life, God is at work in pursuing you. And it's not just he's pursuing a certain percentage of the planet. He's pursuing everybody. He's coming after all of us. Why? Because his love drives him to a place where he's going to come after us because his desire is to be with us, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then the third thing is true about his, his, his side of the story. So obviously he, he's provided for us, he's pursuing us, but here's the crazy thing. God is patient in this whole process. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slowing in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What is Peter saying? What Peter's saying is, Jesus said 2,000 years ago, when he went back to the Father, he said, I'm going to return someday, and that his promise is good. But he is patiently waiting on that return because he wants more people to finally turn around and realize that God of the universe has been pursuing me my whole life. And now I give in to his love and I surrender my life to him. That's why Jesus hasn't returned yet. He's patiently waiting for the world to wake up. He's patiently waiting for the church to wake up to help reach the world. That's why we're still here. If anybody ever, if you, hey, if you know what, if you want to accelerate the process of Jesus' return, there's only one thing you can do to do that. 
You can do what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, 14. He said, in this gospel, the gospel we're talking about, will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. So if you really want to see Jesus come back, then you better ramp up the missionary activity right now. Because that's the only thing that we have as an indicator of the timing. And that means that every single people group and language group in an entire planet has the ability to access the gospel in a way that they understand it. That's when the end comes. We're a little ways away from that. There's estimates between 3,000 and probably 8,000 unreached people groups in the world right now. Now, more of those people groups are being reached all the time, but we're not there yet. But God is patiently waiting. Why? Because he wants people to come to the point of repentance and turn and follow him and know what life is all about. So three things I want to conclude with because we have our side of the story, we have God's side of the story, and this is the beauty of when we finally give in to his pursuit. There's this intersection that happens in us that we finally engage with God. We finally, our eyes are open to who he is through Jesus, and the result is these three things that happen in our life, that now it's not his story and our story over here, it's our story meshed together, which is God's story, which people have said it's his story. History is God's story, and we're a part of that. First thing that happens when we encounter him is that we experience this thing called redemption. Peter also said this in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What is redemption? Redemption is when you take something that would be considered worthless and has no value, and you give it ultimate value. You ever, when you, if many of you don't even remember this because you're not as old as I am, but when I was a kid, you actually could take a bottle like of Coke or 7-Up or Sprite or whatever, and it actually was glass, and it said redemption value, and you actually could go to a store and get a nickel, woo, for a, for a bottle. What, what was happening? You were taking what someone would throw in the trash, and you were bringing what value to it as it was redeemed for another purpose. That's what happens with us. And why that is so important is because many of us think that, obviously, the impact of our sin from our past, when we meet Jesus, doesn't hold us back from the future. But God uses every point of failure in our past to be redeemed for something he wants to do in our future. See, we, we don't live in the past, but God redeems the past. He takes the moments of failure and brokenness that we've experienced, and he takes those, and he does this beautiful thing, and he transforms them into something that not only benefits us, but it benefits other people. He makes what we thought was useless become useful. Yesterday, we had about 100 guys show up for Conquer yesterday to talk about one of those uncomfortable topics, sexual purity. We always, I was th- talking with a couple guys. Wonder, wonder what the conversations are like in households after that. You know, you come home and your wife says, hey, honey, what did you talk about today? Sports, I guess. What else are we going to talk about? Why? Because there's something going on not only in our church, but in the body of Christ and in our culture that there's, there's a, a huge challenge that we face with sexual purity in our culture and our church that God is wanting to bring freedom in. Now, what was happening yesterday was all the guys were beginning to experience a point of redemption, not only in their lives, but redemption in the life of the man who authored the Conquer series, whose name is Ted Roberts. He shared a little bit of his story, and if you don't know his story, it's amazing, because when before he came to Christ, he was an alcoholic, he was a sex addict, and he was out of control. He called himself a rageaholic, and even as he came to Christ, that was a part of who he was. But God began to work in him in such a way that no longer does he have those kinds of addictions 
And he's walked through the place where now he is free from sexual addiction and free from alcoholism and is in, in, in obviously the ability to control his anger in a way that has brought freedom from him. But there are literally thousands of guys around our country now who are finding freedom through Conquer Series. Why? Because God used the brokenness of one man and redeemed it in such a way to bring freedom to thousands. See, that's the way God works. He redeems us. So that means when you come to Christ, you bring all your stuff with you. You don't leave it at the door. And that's one of the things, you know, when we come to worship, and pardon me if anyone of our church has ever said this, but it's like, okay, just leave all your problems at the door and come and worship. Oh, no, bring them with you. Because God wants to redeem those. You know, the funny thing is, you can't leave them at the door. They follow you right in. <laughs> and God knows that. And he wants to redeem those points of brokenness in our life. And then the second thing, that when our story comes together, we experience reconciliation. If you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you have heard this word over and over and over again. The overarching picture of human history of the gospel is God reconciling us back to him through Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them bring us back into relationship. Jesus came to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. He came back to restore that, that connection that we have. Now, I know one thing, it's true in, in, in following Jesus. You will come to seasons in your life where you think you've understood what it means to follow him. You think you've understood the gospel, and then God shows up in a way and says, you know what, there's a whole lot more you need to know. And it's funny, as a pastor, you would think, as a pastor, I know everything, and I'll tell you there are days, many days, I know nothing and I'm just discovering. And it was probably about five, six years ago. So I raised in a Christian home, pastoring for many years, went to Bible college, had theological training, and I read a book that started to transform the way I thought about how God was relating to me. And that was, I had missed the concept of reconciliation in my life, that God's desire was to be in relationship with me. And I had a friend that said, hey, there's this book I think you really would benefit by reading. It's a, the name of the author was uh, Sky Jathani, and the, the name of the book was With. Just one word. I'm like, with what? You know, that doesn't explain much. So I started to read it, and it was one of those books, as you read it, you just, you can't, you can't put it down. Because what, what the author was talking about is how we make everything about the gospel and about Christianity not about what it's supposed to be about, God has one agenda and one objective for humanity, and it's defined in one simple four-letter word that's a positive one. It's the word with. God wants to be with us. That's his desire. That's all of human history. If you want one word of everything of the gospel, it's the word with. God is not interested in what you can do for him. He isn't. He wants you to be with him that's what we talked about with what Lindsay's journey is that we have to learn that God wants us. He doesn't just want us for what we can do for him because he doesn't need us to do anything for him. He already has it all. But when we are with him, you know what we want to do? We want to do things for him, not because we're earning anything, but because we love him. And when I read that book, it was like the light popped on. I'm like, really, God? All this? You mean the whole focus of the gospel is not just to make me a good person? It's not just to make me moral and perfect because that's not the focus of the gospel. You know what the fo that's the focus of? That's the focus of the law. And we've seen from scripture how the law couldn't save people. The byproduct of the gospel is morality and purity. That's not the goal. The goal is with. It's reconciliation. 
And that's what God's desire, and that's what we get. And then there's the final thing. Our story, together with God's story, looks like relationship. Revelation 21, verse 3, I read this last week. This is a picture of what John saw in the future and what heaven will be like. And he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's the exact thing that Adam and Eve had in the garden. God was with them. They were with him and that was lost in sin. And now at the end of all things, because of what Jesus did, we get to be with God. And some think, well, what does that even mean, with God? See, I think what we don't realize is that we actually get to be in that kind of context. We will realize for the first time why we are really created, how we really work, what it really means to be human. Because for the first time we'll realize, oh, that's why I was created this way. Because God wants me to be with him and now it makes sense. Because we don't see the clarity of that. To understand God's desire is relationship and he will stop at nothing Nothing to reach that relationship with us. He wouldn't even hold back his own son. That Jesus willingly would come and die and suffer, even though Jesus was perfect. Why? Because God's love was so powerful. He had to make a way for us to be back in relationship. Now, for some of you who've been in the church, like, ah, yeah, I've heard that a million times. Revisit the concept. It'll transform your life. I'll close with this, and I've shared this before, but it's one of those moments, and it's one of those, one of the, most powerful and probably one of the most horrific moments as a parent you can experience. So when Courtney and Jordan were pretty young, I think Courtney was like three or four. Jordan was still kind of in a stroller, so maybe she was even three. I don't know. Courtney was pretty smart and articulate at early age, so I lose track of how old she was. But we went to the Ventura County Fair, and we had a great day with my sister and her husband, and at the end of the day, we kind of came into the, there's an eating area that we were sitting in, and there was a band playing, and so we got kind of the traditions. We get a funnel cake, and we're all sitting there eating a funnel cake together, and listening to the band, and then we all finished, and then kind of all at the same time, we all got up to leave. And so all of us got up, and we headed towards the gate to the parking lot. And as we were doing this, one of those kind of perfect storms where all of us, and so Kim and I, and then my sister and her husband, all four adults, got up, and we turned to go towards the gate, not realizing that Courtney got up from the table, and she turned the opposite direction and started walking away thinking that we were right there with her, and we're thinking she's right there with us, and we're going opposite directions. So it it couldn't have been more than 10, 20, maybe 30 seconds, and about 10 steps away from the table, and you know, you'd think I'd be a little bit better parent. I only had two kids, so I can do inventory pretty quick. I turn, I know Kim's pushing Jordan in the stroller. That's one, and I turn around, and Courtney's nowhere to be seen. I mean, literally vanished. And you're looking, it's like everything in that moment, your worst fears as a parent, every worst case scenario just starts rushing into your brain. First thing, and a pedophile's got her. That's exactly what it went into my mind. Someone has grabbed her. And so you go into panic mode. So all four of us adults, Kim was hanging on to Jordan, but all of us just kind of spread out all over the place to try to find her. And we're looking, and she's nowhere. I'm looking all around the food vendor. She's not there. I'm looking up towards the stage. She's not there. Everywhere you look, she's not there. And then the panic level is just going higher and higher and higher. And so we literally just all spread out. And so then I I started moving out out of the eating area and out into where the kind of the midway where all the games were and the rides and stuff. And so I turned the corner and about 50 feet out there is Courtney. I mean, she's like this big. She's standing there talking to two adults. 
And I just scream, Courtney! And she turns around, and she sees me, and I see her, and we both start running. It was like in a movie. You're like, you know, running. I'm not kidding. And I just start sobbing, and she starts crying, and her little legs are moving as fast as she can. I grab her, and I picked her up, and I squeezed her, literally almost squeezed the guts out of my daughter. And we're holding each other, and we're just sobbing, and then Kim gets there, and we're like just this pile of tears, just hugging her. And after like five minutes, you know what, parents, what I said next? Don't you ever do that again. In her little voice, she says, oh, Dad, I won't do that again. And then I remember Kim got her, and she squeezed the guts out of her and held on to her. And then I remember going to the parking lot, and I said to Kim, I said, honey, I, I need to have her. And so she said, here. And so I just held Courtney, and we were walking into the parking lot. I said, honey, we almost lost you. I said, I love you so much. Please don't ever wander off again. Don't ever do that. I remember getting the car. It's like I didn't want to drive the car. I just wanted to get in the back seat and hold her hand because I didn't want to lose her. There's, there's no... It's no accident that God calls himself Father because it's a way that he expresses his love for his children, for those he created. And if I can feel that for my daughter who was lost for probably a minute, can you imagine what the God of the universe feels for us when we're lost for a lifetime? There's nothing he won't do to pursue us. That's the gospel. And even today, he's pursuing. He's pursuing. The beautiful thing about God is when he gets you, he doesn't stop pursuing you. He keeps coming after you in every aspect of your life. But if you've never surrendered to him and you're here today, you're here not because you chose to came, come. God orchestrated circumstances for you to be here. Why? Because he wants to intersect your life today. And he's been working out stuff in your, your life. And if you're honest with yourself, you would look at circumstances and think, somebody's up to something because I can't figure out what's going on. But you're here today because he's calling you to respond to him, to stop running, to stop hiding, to finally stop and to surrender to his love, to be in a relationship with him because that's why you were created. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes for a moment. The worship team's going to come and we'll sing one last song together. But I want you to respond to what God is doing with God, there are no accidents. He uses the great high moments of our life. He uses the low moments of our life. He uses the mundane days that we live out that seem to go one to the next. But at every point, he's pursuing you. And if you're here today and you have never come to the place where you say, you know what? I'm gonna acknowledge that there is a God and now, maybe for the first time, you not only acknowledge that there is a God, but you acknowledge there's a God that actually loves you and cares more for you than you ever thought was possible. If that's where you're at right now, there's something that God wants you to do. Not, not a way to do something to be good enough in order to gain his favor, but something that will change your life forever. He has created you to live in relationship with him, and he has this thing called life that if you have yet to embrace him and to choose no longer to be your own God and to be not in control anymore, but let him do that, then you will experience what he calls life, the true way that he created you to live. It doesn't mean that your problems will disappear. It doesn't mean that life will be perfect, but you will have the active presence of God living inside of you in such a way that no matter what you walk through, you will know he will never leave you. He will never forsake you because he has made a way for you to be with him because he has taken every point of brokenness and failure and pain and suffering in your life and he has taken it on 
Jesus has taken it on himself so that you don't have to carry that anymore. You don't have to worry about being punished for that. Why? Because Jesus took that on your behalf. And on the cross, when he died, he took all of that. And the reason he did is he made a way now you can be in relationship with the God of the universe. But in order to do that, you have to accept his invitation. You have to accept his love. And that means doing that says, I'm no longer God. I'm no longer in control. I no longer try to live out what I think is happiness. I let God define that for me because he's the one that created me. He's the one that knows me. And if that's your desire right now, we're gonna sing in a moment. You just begin to do what all of us can do. We can pray, which is a simple conversation with God. God hears your prayers and responds to what's going on. You just tell him, I'm finally giving up. I'm finally gonna stop running. I'm finally gonna surrender. I wanna turn my life over to you and allow me to experience life. Lord Jesus, would you do that in these moments that not one person would leave here today not knowing your love in its fullness in a relationship with you, why we were created. Father, we thank you for your love that always pursues us, will never give up on us. Lord, until the day you return or the day we die, you will always come after us with your love, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the gospel. Let us experience the good news today in Jesus' name. Amen.